Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Um, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who listen to the program. And again, this is a live interactive program we covet and look forward to your interaction with us here on the program. No matter how you are listening to us tonight, we are honored that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening to listen to the live episode of this program. If you are listening on Saturday afternoon, welcome, and we look forward to your interaction also. You can send in your questions on Saturday via WhatsApp or text, and they will be answered next week on the coming Tuesday as we start out the episode. And let me share one more housekeeping item, and then we're going to jump into our topic for the night. Make sure that you are inviting others to tune into the program. I know you're enjoying the program, and we are thankful that you are, and we want to make sure that you can share that with others. So send a WhatsApp, a text message, call down uh, the street to your friend or your neighbor, Send something to a family member, maybe even living in a different time zone, maybe a different continent altogether. We would be glad for them to listen online, whether it be at Facebook or online at our website at www.radiolighthouse.org. Now that we've got all that information taken out of the way, I want to introduce our topic again for tonight. This is a topic we've been discussing for some time. We've had a fair bit of interaction on it, and we were talking about prayer, and then Pastor has transitioned to the topic of the Holy Spirit. Pastor, can you give us just a brief overview of the Holy Spirit, what we've discussed so far for those who are joining us for the first time tonight? Well, so far we've uh, covered the subject of why we would put interest in this subject at this point in time. And then we began to ask ourselves, straighten out certain questions that people ask um, about the Holy Spirit. Um, For example, is he a person? Is he a power? Is he an influence? And we try to uh, clarify reasons why people have come to these false conclusions. And we point out that sometimes it's the actual inaccurate translation. In other times, people fail to understand it's something called a grammatical gender uh, where objects are given uh, either the infi- uh, given the um, neuter gender and sometimes even things that are uh, neuter given the masculine and feminine gender it has to do with the, the grammar of the particular writing 
And then we also talked, cleared up some matters about why he's called the Holy Ghost. Uh, I, I did not deliver it because I don't like the term, to be very honest with you. I, I read about Ghostbusters and stuff like that. So I thought it was important to clarify that the word is meant spirit back in the, um, 1611. Uh, today, it connotes something a little bit different. Uh, when you think of a ghost, you think of a human spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit. But at that time, that was a common word, but I, I tried to clear that up. The other thing is that we tried to point out that um, even in those passages where um, in the King James there is a neuter gender, uh, he's called it, for example. If you read the passage even further, uh, he's now given the, the personal pronoun he. Uh, the reason why they would use the it is because puma, which is the word for spirit, is neuter. Uh, but as our Lord speak, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you several times, four or five times, he said he, uh, calling by the personal pronoun. And then we went into further to discuss the whole matter of if the Holy Spirit is a person or not. And we gave you several reasons why um, he is a person. Uh, we talk about he has intelligence, he has emotions. Um and he has a will. Uh, we also point out that the personal pronouns are applied to him. Uh, we found that uh, personal offenses uh, can affect him, and we, he does things that only a person can do. We listed several of those things. And then we moved into the whole matter of, okay, he's a person. But what type of person is he? Is he uh, a human spirit, an angelic spirit? Is he a divine spirit? Is he a satanic spirit? Or what kind of spirit is he? And we discover that in, in Scripture, he is divine. He is the third person within the Trinity. And we began studying the, his deity and looking at what are the reasons for him being considered uh, God. And we pointed out that he's called God. There's seven uh, primary arguments that are used to substantiate his deity. Uh, he's called God. His attributes. Uh, that are attached to him are attributes only ascribed to God. Uh, he receives honor that only God, uh, only God can receive. Uh, he's associated with the other members of the Trinity uh, within the Godhead on, the, on a footing of equality. Uh, his words are recognized as the very words of God. In other words, they're in the Old Testament words that said that God spake those words. And then when we come to the New Testament, it said the Holy Spirit spake those words. And then the, the names applied to him imply his deity because these same names are applied to the Father and applied to the Son. So those are the seven uh, basic reasons that we have come to the conclusion uh, by studying Scripture that he is not just a person, but he is a divine person. He's a third person within the Godhead. Before we delve further into this, this is somewhat, I can imagine some saying, well, Pastor, this is getting into the area of doctrine, a lot of uh, deep stuff. Why do I need to know this? This is unnecessary for the Christian life. You know, I, I keep repeating something on the radio, and I hope people understand this. We are now living in a world that is focused mainly on entertainment and emotions. The Bible is about truth, and only truth uh, can apply to the mind. It doesn't apply to the emotions. And I, I can't get people to understand that. One of the most vulgar things any person can do in the pulpit is to try to work immediately on a person's emotions by passing their mind. You reach the emotions through the mind. You have to use truth to affect the mind so that the emotions are changed. 
But when people go directly to massage the emotions to get people to make decisions by sad stories and building up uh, music and stuff like that, get the people aroused, and then to uh, preach some emotional sermon, get them down the aisle uh, crying and screaming and whatever it is. But next day, it, it, it just evaporates. It's when you understand truth and truth begins to get into your mind and your thoughts and you grasp what the truth is, then you have what the Bible calls joy. And joy is com- something completely different than this kind of emotional thing that we have today, which pretty much depends on the moment where the music is going and the screaming is going and the shouting is going. But it is evanescent. It doesn't last very long. So to answer your question, Nathan, uh, Christianity is about truth. Truth is first about getting into the mind. And uh, as it gets into the mind and the mind grasps that truth, it gets into the understanding. And then, of course, it leads to a point where once you have uh, truth, then it begins to arouse your emotions to bring you to the point where you have faith. And then you surrender your will and your volition to him. But always it targets the mind first. I would suggest to anybody who um, don't fully understand this to read the book of Philippians. And you see that uh, the Apostle Paul in that past that particular book, he, he, the theme of that book is joy. Uh, I think, what, 10, 12 times joy and rejoice he used. But again and again, read it, you see that Paul keeps going back to the mind, to the mind, to the mind, to the mind, to the mind. As a matter of fact, if you read uh, Be Joyful by Warren Worsby, you'll find that he divides the, the four chapters in Ephesians into four different types of minds. And he lays it out very, 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 very clearly in that particular passage. But scripture, you remember also we last week we talked about, um, we got off to answer a question about tongues. And Paul said, I'd rather pray with my mind and my understanding uh, than with words that he don't even comprehend. Again, the Apostle Paul appreciated that what scripture is about. Truth is about getting, affecting the mind to change the mind. If the emotions are stirred and the emotions uh, can be rattled, but the mind doesn't change, the understanding doesn't change, tomorrow morning you're back at stage one where you were. So I think a lot of what is being done is that uh, pastors are bypassing people's mind and not getting people to think. Uh, They're just using uh, emotion. And as a result of that, we have a lot of shallow Christians who can't handle things in life and who break down when circumstances are unfavorable to them. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. It is a live interactive program every Tuesday evening, and then it re-airs on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, one other thing, Nathan. Anyone that reads the epistles of the Apostle Paul will discover that every single epistle has a format. It's a twofold format. The first section of the epistle always deals with doctrine. The last part, always deal with practice. Paul understood that you lay the foundation of doctrine, out of doctrine you get your practice, and etc., etc. He doesn't alter it. He never goes to the emotions. He always teaches doctrine, which applies to the mind. And out of that understanding, uh, you're now brought to, okay, as a result of this truth that you've learned and you understand, now apply that truth to your daily life. That's the pattern you find in every single epistle that Paul has written. So should our sermons that we hear today be modeled after that same pattern? I personally feel that uh, we don't have in most, well, mostly mega churches, it, they're more narrative preaching. 
Mm-hmm. And narrative preaching is maybe getting a parable or reading a story of life in somebody in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and then the pastor goes off on his, uses his imagination, create all kinds of circumstances, again, uh, stroke the emotions and milk the emotions again and again and again. But you would hardly find uh, in a mega church that they're dealing with uh, Bible doctrine and going to even even doing expository preaching, you, you hardly would find that in any of the mega churches because they're all topical subjects, and uh, generally speaking, they bypass a lot of the truths. But if we don't uh, get back to solid doctrinal teaching, uh, and doctrine could be boring. Let me let me put it that way. But it depends on the pastor how he makes it boring or whether or not he makes it interesting. But it's a gross mistake. That is the modern in the modern pulpit that they bypass the great truths of Scripture. Uh, if we don't understand God and its attributes, uh, I'm not too sure how in the world we handle life when things are thrown at us. We don't yeah. understand His attributes. So, I think it's one of the great failures of the modern pulpit um, that that has you know that's pump people like it. But I think in the, in the long term, it really doesn't produce the kind of quality Christian that is needed to face the, 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 uh, the life that we have today. You just referenced, if we don't know God, you're not sure how we face uh, what life throws at us. Pastor, for the listener who is tuned in and says, I'm overwhelmed, whether it be through COVID, whether it be through I've lost my job, or maybe even things are going well, but I realize I need God. Where do I even start? Well, if a person is really uh, searching for God, he said, if you search me with all your heart, you're going to find me. I would suggest that um, go where you can find God. And what I mean by that is, I know God is everywhere, Nathan, but if I really want, if I was really searching for God, I would find myself... I, I may not know what church it is in, but I would start visiting churches to hear, because that's where God is, that's where God's people are, and uh, listen to the message. So that would be my first thing to a person. And the other thing would be get into the Word. Um, if you have a Bible, I would suggest that you start reading the book of John, which is the standard book that introduces you to Jesus and uh, his, his teachings. And you'll find that in the book of John, there are many personal encounters with different individuals, how he deals with them. Chapter 3, for example, dealing with Nicodemus, is a great chapter on how to be born again. I would I would start with um, church. I would start with Scripture. And again, I think a lot of people don't believe this, but I believe that also praying to God and asking God to let guide, bring someone along the way, whatever it is. Uh, that's what I would recommend at this point in time call Caribbean Real Lighthouse. I mean, a good radio station where uh, you know that they've been preaching the truth and teaching the truth for how many years now, Nathan? Uh, it's 46 and a half years. Yeah, almost uh, almost a half oh, a century. Yeah. And uh, everybody who in Antigua knows that this radio station has been consistently preaching the same message. They haven't altered it. They haven't changed it. They haven't uh, tried to um, embellish it in any way. They've been preaching the straight gospel. And this would be a, 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 one of the great um, stations that you would want to call and get in contact with somebody. And if they can't deal with the matter directly, they're connected with Baptists all over the within this island, and they could probably ask one of the pastors to either contact the individual and then sit down with them and, and so on and so forth. But uh, God is not far. As the book of uh, Acts chapter said, he's not far from all of us. And uh, if you seek him, you're going to find him. And it could very well be that this COVID period uh, has knocked so many people's um, life off center. 
so many things that they trusted in. Some have lost their jobs, some have lost the the mortgage because they can't meet the payment. They've really been rocked in ways that they've never been rocked before. And of course, when the foundation on which a person's life is built is found to be sand, it's then that they cry out and realize, uh, you know, that there's something more to life than this. And it could be that God is using these circumstances to create the mindset that uh, I need to turn my life over to God and begin with God at some point in time. He, God does do that sometimes uh, in terms of waking us up. And this may be a wake-up call for many people. One more question building off of that. You referenced uh, go where God is, go to church. How do I determine what is a good church and what is not a good church in the mind of God, in the perspective of God? Well, the first thing would be, in my judgment, is what is a pulpit ministry like? Uh, is the person preaching the Word? Uh, it's not about music. It's not about entertainment and dancing. It's not about um, uh, showing movies and films, etc., etc. What is the pulpit ministry? I think that is very, very important. The other thing I, I, I would say to you is that the, the, the people that you, when you go to the church, um, do they give you the idea that they uh, care about you, that they welcome you? Uh, do you feel somewhat comfortable that they're trying to reach out to you and are glad that you're there? Uh, and if it is possible if you sit and you listen to the message. It, it Maybe after the after the um, the service, you could request the pastor to meet with you afterwards uh, in terms of speaking to you about the, your matter and your your, your concern. Um, and uh, if you actually got saved and you're actually going to join a church, I think that one of the crucial things about a church ministry is this missions program. I say that so many times on this program. Uh, the, the primary job of the church is evangelism. Uh, that is not only personal evangelism, but evangelizing of the world. That's the mandate that was given to us in Mark chapter 28. And I think uh, a church that is not fulfilling that mandate even as a small way it can, it must be able to support some kind of missionaries, whether local or overseas. But if it has no missionary base, what's the purpose of its existence? And I think that is something that you would have to look at very thoughtfully and carefully uh, as far as that is concerned. Um, and the other other thing that I think would be uh, important in the church is, uh, is it very obvious that... Um, people are have the opportunity to use the gifts within the church. Does the pastor play the guitar? Does he turn around and play the organ? Does he play and do the preaching, then he collect the offering? And then, you know, he, is, he the, is he the star boy, basically? And you get the impression that this ministry is, you know, that he allows other people to do other things, basically. I think that's important as well, because if God is calling you and you saved you, he wants to get you into ministry where you can use your, your gift within that church so if you it's very very clear that your gift can be used and uh, that's the mindset of the church I think those four things should help you to decide in terms of what church should be you're listening to CRL and we're glad that you are this is a live interactive program there's a number of ways that you can interact with us you can call and be put live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Your question does not have to relate to our topic tonight. It can be about life. It can be about why the Bible says something and doesn't say something. 
it can be a question that someone asked you at the workplace today. It can be something that just came to your mind right now as you're listening to Pastor Teach from the Word of God. We look forward to your interaction and your questions. If you have a topic that you would like discussed in a future episode, be sure to let us know that also. Maybe your question is very sensitive. Maybe it's something you would be embarrassed for to be attached back to you. Please know that if you send in your question via WhatsApp or text, and especially if you put uh, something like anonymous or uh, please don't mention even what country or what region in the world I am from, we will respect that and we will not mention your area at all. And But we would be glad to answer your question from a biblical worldview. If you have a question, I can say with almost complete certainty that someone else has that same question, has or will be facing a similar circumstance now or at some point in the future. And by you asking the question and pastor being able to answer that from using the Bible, it will help others. Pastor, you were talking about the Holy Spirit. And what are the arguments for his deity? Can you elaborate some on that? Uh, I mean, we realize he's a person, but he's also deity, and you listed seven ways that we know that. But how do you prove that? Yeah, well, what we did, we started to look in the Scripture. I'm not going to go through what we've covered already, but we we looked at the fact that in Scripture itself, he's called God. And uh, we especially referred you to the book of Acts, where he's actually um, Ananias and Sapphira laid to the Holy Spirit, and Peter said, you're not lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God, quite frankly. So that shows you the antecedent, and uh, therefore God is the fact of the Holy Spirit. We also thought that he's, he's called Lord, which is a name that um, is applied both to the Father and the Son, and uh, he's also called the Almighty as well in that passage. Oh. <laughs> The second thing is that we, we looked at the fact that he possessed attributes of God, and we mentioned five of those attributes. We let, that he's called the eternal spirit in, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. Uh, we pointed that he's infinite by looking at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 to 18. He is omnipresent, Psalm 139, 9, uh, 7 to 10. He's omniscient, that is, he has all power, and we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 to 11. Uh, and then he's omnipotent, more power in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, and Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. So it's very clear that these attributes, um, eternal, being eternal, his eternality, his infin- infinity, um, his omni- omnipresence, his omniscience, and his uh, omnipotence, these are attributes that only can be ascribed to God, and therefore because he possesses these, uh, this puts him on the same level as the Father and the Son. And then we talked about he does works that only God can do. And we discovered last time that he was involved in creation. We saw that in Genesis 1-2, Job 33, verse 4, Job 26, verse 13, and Psalm 104, verse 3a. All of those speak about the Holy Spirit, uh, Spirit of God involved in the act of creation. And then we uh, came to the other point where he's involved in regeneration. Uh, regeneration has to do with the implanting of new life in uh, the believer. And Nathan, could you look at John chapter 3 and verse 5, 6, and 7? John 3, 5, 6, and 7 say, yeah. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, 
and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Yeah, and then our Lord goes on to use the illustration that the wind blows where it wants to list of, and you cannot tell from whence it comes and where it goes. And then he says, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is involved in this matter of regeneration, the implanting of life, new life within the person who repents and put their faith and trust in Christ. Only God can give life. You'll find later on that the Son said that the Father gave him to give life like himself as the Father has life. Now we discover the Holy Spirit as well. He can implant life, and he does that when we're born again. Again, these are things that works that only God can do. God, God alone regenerates, we know that. And uh, he uses the Holy Spirit as the agency to, re- to regenerate a person. So in creation... Uh, that's a work of God. Regeneration certainly is a work of God. And then if you look at um, Romans 1, 4 and Romans eight eleven, you'll find that the Holy Spirit is involved in resurrection as well. Romans 1, 4 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And then eight eleven. I think that's the other one. Romans 8, 11, 11 says... But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. The point we're making that God, if you go through the Old Testament, we're told clearly that God is the one that brings about resurrection. In the book of Daniel, the resurrection of the just and the unjust, we now learn as we go through Scripture that the Father uh, is involved in, in uh, raised, raising the dead, but we also discover that the Holy Spirit is involved in raising Christ from the dead. And then, remember Christ said, I will lay down my life and raise it up as well. So the entire Trinity is involved in this whole matter of the of uh, the resurrection of Christ. And that shows you that he's performing the same work the Father does, the same work the Son does, and the Spirit does that. These are works that only God can do, and this, this also qualifies him to be uh, uh, labeled as... Um, uh, and then the other one, Nathan, is the inspiration. Look at First Peter chapter 1, 11, and First Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. First Peter 1, 11. First Peter one eleven says, "Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow." Notice the Spirit of Christ uh, is mentioned there, and this is one of the descriptive words of the Spirit because He is the one that brings knowledge of Christ and was going to uh, give to the prophets the data about the Messiah. And that's that's, the, that's the, the same as the Holy Spirit. S- yeah. Okay. Uh, th- that is. Um, I mean, so the Spirit of Christ dwelleth in you is the same same expression mm-hmm. that is the, the Spirit because He represents Christ and He exalts Christ and He uh, He's the one that gives the information about to the prophets about the Messiah coming. He's given that information about them. And then they've got Second Peter chapter one verse twenty and twenty one. Second Peter chapter one verses twenty and twenty one say Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
again, you notice that uh, in the Old Testament, God says, I've exalted my word above my name. And you'll know that God is responsible for the word. But here we're told that the Holy Spirit is the instrument that was used to inspire man to bring us the word. So he's involved in inspiration. Inspiration is a work of God because inspiration has to do with God superintending the writing of um, the truth of Scripture by men and God oversaw that, oversaw that so that uh, what is in Scripture is what God wanted. But the Holy Spirit is the one who is the active agent involved in inspiration. And that puts him on par again because this inspiration uh, of God's Word is a work that God does. And uh, that puts him in that realm. So Pastor, we have a question sure. that's coming from a listener. Pastor, if I attend a small church that is not able to support the pastor... Should they start supporting missionaries, or should you f- support your pastor full-time before you support any mission work? Um, that's a good question. My, my judgment is, uh, let me just say this. I, in America, by the way, I forgot the, the percentage, but a high percentage of people who are in the pulpit in America are bivocational. Huge percentage. They, they work, uh, the church can't afford to pay them a full salary, and they are doing the job, and yet they're, they get, uh, et cetera. Um, I am more inclined, uh, in my judgment, that you should probably try to get your church um, um, on a good financial setting first. If the church needs, uh, if the church is going to grow, um, depending on the gifts that your pastor has. I don't know how talented he is. I don't know if the work he's doing is interfering his capacity to prepare the message. There are some men that that, that that do their best, but they struggle because they just find it difficult to be out there uh, five days a week, seven days, six days a week, and then have to prepare messages, etc., etc. And they do prepare messages, but a lot of it is not thoughtful messages. And it does not um, lead to growth in the church, et cetera, et cetera. So my first thinking would be to see if the church can grow the church, and as the church grows, try to support your pastor. But here's the problem that happens, and I've seen this happen in churches here in Antigua, among the Baptists. I know of churches here in Antigua that could not, as a matter of fact, I know of one pastor who pretty much ended up resigning because they could not even support him, and they had all these missionaries uh, they were trying to support. And the, the, the question was, which was the priority to be given? Uh, unfortunately, here's what happens again. When the missionaries came, they did not need support because they were supported from overseas. Yeah. And the churches were not thought, uh, many of them, that, listen, it's a different scenario when you're going to take on a local pastor now, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, et cetera. Um, with the in our missions program, our missions program has nothing to do with our tithes. It has to do with our, what we call a faith promise missions. So I would say to you that you can have a faith promise missions along with what you're paying your pastor, uh, and let people understand the two are different. And th- I can't see why any church cannot have a faith promise missions and at least support one or two missionaries. And as the church grows. But it's not to take money out of the tithe and offering, then to direct it to that matter, because it doesn't it doesn't help the church to grow any. As a matter of fact, there's some Caribbean churches are struggling. A lot of the small Baptist churches are struggling for years. Uh, I mean, some of them are 25 years, don't even own the land. They're still renting the building. Uh, that is a travesty. That's a that's a, a real, real travesty. And uh, I wish that. Um, 
I wish that serious thought was given uh, to this matter long before the missionaries left, at least to get the churches. And by the way, there, there are many, many organizations now in the States that are willing to help churches with their building. So when you eliminate having to pay rent, eliminate having to worry about a building, now you can focus on supporting the pastor. But when you've got a building to work about, you still got the past. I don't know what thought went through to this whole process. And I think it was a, a grievous mistake not to think this thing through more carefully so to get these churches, so that you find churches that came after the Baptists. I've grown by leaps and bounds. And then you've got sprinkled across the Caribbean, small little struggling churches who can't even pay their pastor and who are struggling even at this time after 30, 40 years. I just think something went wrong there. And uh, I was not there when those decisions were made. I don't know what the mindset was, etc., etc. But I think in retrospect, uh, we can see that at least uh, help the churches to get their building and then once they can do that, then they can start taking the same funding they're paying for rent. If you're paying $1,000 rent uh, for a building, plus you've got it for electricity, uh, think about that for just a moment, and you've got, you know. So I, um, I, would think, I, I would think you should try to aim to get your, uh, support your pastor. But at the same time, I think every church can start a faith promise missions because it has nothing to do with the, the tithing part of the whole matter. Uh, and I think that whatever comes in can be going to one missionary, two missionaries, three missionaries. And you will find that as the Lord blesses, you might be surprised at uh, what a church can do as they begin to support missionaries because God will bless it. But I think it's important to, to, to um, try to work to get your past if you think that the, he really needs to, to give the time to study in the Word and stuff like that. Um, I, I can't, um, I don't know if I could be a bivocational pastor. I really don't know. Um, I, I am a person who needs time to study. Nothing comes to me easy. Every sermon is like the first sermon I ever preach. And the thing I try to put as much work in every sermon as I preach my uh, every sermon, so it, it requires time and effort and reading and studying. Other people might find it easier, but I've never found it easier. The pulpit is, is, is demanding. Uh, so that's my view for whatever it is worth. Thank you to the individuals who are sending in questions. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good night. Why did John the Baptist, after being imprisoned, send his disciples to ask if Jesus was the one when he was the one that baptized him? Not to mention the dove came down and God said, this is my beloved son. Well, it shows that every man is made of feet of clay. Uh, he is having a, an eclipse of faith. Um, remember he said that every every uh, tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down. He, he, he will, this one would baptize you with fire, with judgment. And then suddenly he discovers that this man is incarcerated. Uh, have I made the, the wrong choice and the wrong decision? Uh, because remember in John's mindset, God is going to set up his kingdom, right? Uh, if he's going to set up his kingdom, Christ has to be king. And this was the view, the Jewish view. If you read the book of Luke chapter 2, um, I forget it was Ananias or uh, said that he, is, he will receive the throne of David when he was born. So the whole idea he's going to have this earthly kingdom, set up his kingdom, get rid of the Roman soldiers, and then suddenly the same uh, soldiers you're looking to be destroyed and the king set up and the kingdom coming, he's now in prison, uh, incarcerated by the secular powers. And John is having some doubts. There's no question about that. So what does John do? John sent somebody to Jesus and asked, are you the one to come? 
Are you the one to come? And Jesus said, go back and tell John, the blind see, the death here. Uh, the poor had the gospel preached and the dead are raised. You know why he told him that? Because in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah uh, 61, these are the exact credentials that would characterize the Messiah when he comes. This is exactly what he would do. So he's reaffirming to John that you can't look at the circumstances that I'm incarcerated. Look at what the Word says about me in terms of what I would do when the Messiah comes. And that's how Christ rebuilds John's faith uh, to let him know that his trust must not be in the circumstantial fact that he is in incarcerated, but am I fulfilling the messianic uh, claims that what the Messiah would do? Keep looking to me and the Messiah. And again, every single disciple misunderstood the whole purpose of the first coming. Our Lord came to die. Isaiah chapter 53, he would die first. But he's also coming again to rule. And they had this whole thing reversed. They, all they saw was the ruling part of it, but never saw the dying part of it. And that's where the Jews were misled uh, and found it, even today, difficult to believe that Christ could have been the Messiah. Because to suffer an ignominious death on a cross. And remember, the Romans never, no Roman citizen could ever be crucified. It was a, a form of uh, capital punishment reserved for criminals and for foreigners and for people who are going against the state of, 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 of um, Rome. Okay, go ahead. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, sir. How are you doing? I'm not too bad on you, Pastor Nathan. Doing well. What can we do for you? Yes, uh, Pastor, let me tell you two questions. Sure. Uh, what is the role of an evangelist? Of an evangelist? Uh, yeah, and the pastor. Well, what is different? Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. The, and the pastor? What's the difference? Yeah. Well, generally speaking, a pastor also does evangelistic work every time he preaches the gospel. And Paul told Timothy, do the work of evangelism. So there are times when pastors have to have, should have meetings and uh, like tent meetings, um, sometimes open air meetings. Although that open air meetings are not really. Uh, what um, used to, it used to be. When you op had an open-air meeting uh, 30, 40 years ago, people would come around the lights, you'll preach a gospel to them. Today, nobody's listening to that kind of an open setting, so we had to change the methodology. But a pastor has to do the work of evangelism as well. But the difference between a pastor, a pastor's job mainly is to uh, edify the church and build up the church. Uh, his main focus mainly is on, on, on the church people uh, and building up the church that Christ has created. That's the main thing. His, his job is to preach, teach, counsel, uh, that kind of a thing. That's his job. The evangelist job, now, now again, you're talking a full-time evangelist. He's the type of person, his whole purpose is, is he has a, a unique gift of preaching the gospel. There's some people like that, I'll be honest with you. I know one guy that uh, was formerly a, a great Caribbean uh, evangelist. I really thought he had the gift. He's now been on a shelf for donkey years, as we would say in the Caribbean, or maybe, what, 15, 20, 30 years, because he couldn't keep his life in order, and he got morally into, into trouble, and the Lord just put him on a shelf. But he no doubt had the gift, and anybody that heard him knew that he just had this unique gift to present the gospel in a simple form that it appealed to people and always produced some kind of results. So an evangelist is a person who has that unique gift of being able to explain the gospel and preach the gospel. And he normally is an itinerant person. He doesn't stay in a one church. He might be attached to a church, 
but his his, his ministry is evangelism. So he stays in a, a one of the churches in which he's a member, but he travels all over the world. He's invited to different parts of the, the Caribbean, different parts of uh, America, maybe Africa or, or England or, or Canada. But his job basically is the job of preaching and proclaiming the gospel. No, a missionary is something completely different. Uh, a missionary does evangelistic work as well, but normally a missionary is located in one specific spot, and his job is like it comes to Antigua. His job is Antigua, and the evangelist is far wider than Antigua. His 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 his, his vision is the Caribbean, right? He might do a lot of work in Antigua and evangelism, but his job is never to be uh, circumscribed only by Antigua. God has given this gift to carry the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world, and he does that kind of a work. Uh, a missionary generally stays in one location, um, establishes whatever he needs to establish. If he feels that he's founded a church and got a group, move on to another good place, start another church, whatever it is, and uh, install pastors, train pastors, and move on. So the work continues. But it's a little bit different. Uh, in that because, capacity. Because I hear uh, Pastor preaching and you say that I evangelize five gifts of the Spirit. Five gifts? Five different gifts of the Spirit. Well, I don't know who this person is. You had to show me from Scripture. Anytime anybody tells you stuff like that, all I would suggest to you is that the citizen show me in Scripture where that is. Um, so I, I don't have the slightest clue what uh, those particular gifts that person is talking about. Remember, look, remember that you've got places in the States now where you can actually train to be a prophet. But of course, it's going to cost you. Don't forget that then you get credentialed that you're a prophet. And, uh, you know, so it's, there's so much uh, nonsense going on today and so much things that are so unspiritual. Uh, and one wonders how people get away with it. But I discovered that behind a lot of it, there's a mercenary financial um, object behind a lot of these things. And that bothers me greatly. Um, it even bothers me greatly when people want you to have to buy their sermons. Imagine Paul saying, I preach and, you know, my, I, I have a little problem with that. In my mind, I have a little problem with that. Maybe if it's to recover the cost of the, maybe the cassette or something, I understand that. But I just, I just think that everything is so commercialized today that it really eats my soul when I think about it. Um, I just can't imagine uh, Paul or any of the other writers um, making these kind of um, commercial decisions, but it happens. Selling um, the books of the Bible to the churches they wrote. <laughs> <laughs> no, when you think about it, Nathan, really, I know the cost. You've got to recover your cost, right? Yeah. I know my recovery cost because you, you, can't, you can't do that, but I think a lot of things happen. It's just really terrible. Yeah. You're saying, Mr. Second Williams? Question. Second question. Sure, go ahead. I hear a pastor say he's a prophet, and all of a sudden now he changed to an apostle. Oh. So why, what did he ordain apostle or prophet? Well, he's neither prophet nor apostle. Let me just tell you that. Oh, there's no rule for no role for prophets nor apostles today. The apostles and the prophets laid the foundation of the church. You find that in Ephesians chapter 4. They're the ones that laid the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church being laid, the, the canon of scriptures being given to us, we don't need any apostles. The apostle was one with a special message uh, who had seen Christ and who had witnessed the, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, a prophet was a person who can give uh, revelation. 
We don't need any further revelation. We've given all the revelation that we want. If, look, I tell people this, brother. If you read Genesis and read Revelations, you come to one conclusion. You've got the beginning of the book and the end of the book. No question about that. Uh, so these, these people today are people that are... Um, I just think that they're unethical in a lot of what they're doing. I think a lot of them are misled in what they're doing. And I think that a lot of this has come about uh, because of the abuse of the and the emphasis on emotions and uh, the the spirit and and stuff like that. I, I just think that they need to go back to scripture, see what the work of the Holy Spirit and what his main job is. And and uh, I just I just think it is sad to be honest with you that, that you've got people who could switch. Okay, I'm a prophet today, I'm an apostle tomorrow, I'm a pastor the next day. What, what kind of nonsense is that? What kind of nonsense? So I don't, uh, I don't, I don't bite. Look, because a person said they're religious and they're pastors, you know, <laughs> those things don't bite me. What you say does it align with scripture? If it doesn't align with scripture, I don't care who you are. I don't care what position you hold. It means nothing to me. And I think we've got to get back to scripture. If we, if we don't take scripture on its faith value and hold the scripture, the principle of scripture, we are going to be misled. And our Lord warns us that the end time, the key concept is deception, deception, deception. And the only thing we'll save us from deception is the word. Stick with the word. That's what you stick with. Not with men. Stick with the word. That's what you need to stick with. Thank you, Pastor You're welcome, sir. God bless you. Thank you very much for the call, Brother Williams. We appreciate it. Continue to listen and continue to encourage others to tune in to That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.16. We still have about 45 minutes left in tonight's program, so be sure that you stay tuned as long as possible. I realize that you may have some things you need to go do, but if you can turn the radio on in whatever room you're working in and just have it there in the background as you are multitasking and taking care of your responsibilities. Pastor, we have a question that has come in. It says, good night. Is it a sin to be married and intentionally not have children, seeing that God said to be fruitful and multiply, even though you don't feel as if you are fit to be a parent? What are your thoughts from the Bible? In my view, uh, it is sin. That's my view. You don't have to agree with it. No person should go into a, a marital relationship without wanting children. I would never marry a person or a couple that comes to me and says, Pastor, we want to get married, but we have no plans for children. Well, my, my simple advice is to find somebody else, because it's very, very clear from Scripture that children are a gift from God. No doubt about that whatsoever. And one of the reasons God gave us this gift of procreation is to create life. Okay, so I think that um, to go into a marriage and not, don't want children, I think it's a grievous mistake, a massive mistake. Maybe you were given the gift of celibacy. We may celibate, but if you weren't given the gift of celibacy and you were given um, the, the gift of, of marriage, then why then violate the basic principles in the book of Genesis about what marriage is? And then you go back to Genesis, marriage is about a few things. Number one is about companionship. Okay, quite clear about that. It's about complementing each other. Uh, woman should be like them. Uh, should complement the man. Uh, helpmate, whatever it is. It's about com- uh, intimacy as well. Uh, sex has to be involved in marriage and so on and so on. And it's about children. And it's about, uh, don't forget this, passing on a godly heritage uh, to the next generation. So when you look at those those particular pers- uh, five reasons that are given in the scriptures for marriage, uh, how then can I willfully violate one of them? 
and then expect the blessing of God uh, on my life. Um, I, I'm not for it. Uh, I think it is wrong. And um, if you have gone that direction, you ask God to forgive you, repent, and go and have one or two children, basically. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in that question. And for all the questions that have come in, again, this is a live interactive program, and we look forward to your interaction throughout the program tonight. Still plenty of time, but go ahead and give us a call. Phone line is open and available, awaiting your call. And the number to call to be put live on the air is 268-462-7420. I'll give that to you again, 268-462-7420. That'll put you live on the air. If you don't want to be live on the air, not a problem at all. We still look forward to your question. You can send it via WhatsApp or text message, 268 782 1454. Again, if you send in your question via WhatsApp or text and you want to remain anonymous, just mention that in there and we will not even mention what part of the world you are from and we will respect your question. But again, if you have a question, there's a very high likelihood that someone else listening has that same question. And at the very least, when Pastor answers it from the Bible, it will prepare all of us for being able to answer the question when we're out witnessing or talking to coworkers or wherever we may interact, run into that same question. A question that has just come in. Good evening, Pastor Murphy. Have you come across any books in your study specifically targeting arguments about once saved, always saved? I have a growing curiosity on this topic despite my view and belief on this matter. Yeah, I, I, um, there's John MacArthur has one uh, that I can. What I can do, Nathan, is uh, maybe we can get those books and pass them on and and so on. Maybe just at the beginning of next week's episode? Yeah, we yeah. Or, or if the person left a number, okay. I will give them one or two references to that matter. But generally, MacArthur has one. Ironside uh, has one. Um, uh, I know that um, those are two that come to mind immediately, uh, Dr. Ironside and... Um, um, but the others, I know the others that uh, I can actually source for that person to help them in that regard. All right. We will get that information from Pastor and then we'll pass it along to you or we'll uh, put Pastor directly in contact with you in relation to the your interest there in books on that topic. If you have a question again, you can WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Pastor, until the next question comes in, uh, can you pick back up with explaining the arguments for the deity of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, the fourth one that we need to answer, that he received the honor that only God uh, deserves. For example, we are, our body is said to be the what? Temple. Temple. So who dwells in the temple? Only God dwells in the temple. In a true temple there, where the, the, there's... Um, Reverence, it means that God dwells there. So that's showing you clearly the fact that He dwells in our body, which is viewed by God as our temple. That clearly indicates that He cannot be just some kind of a uh, diminutive being or, or spirit. He has to be of the same quality, uh, same attributes as the Father and the Son. So that the fact that He is uh, um, the the temple is is. Uh, is our body is His temple. Only deity lives within a temple, uh, and. Uh, if he's not an illegitimate deity, he has to be the true deity. And that would mean that he would have to share the same essence of God. So he inhabits the temple. And of course, a temple is a place where there's worship. And again, uh, you can see very clearly where that uh, brings him in line uh, as considered 
uh, equal with the Father and the Son. The fifth one has to do with the fact that he's associated with other members of the Trinity on the footing of equality. And that gives you, for example, Matthew 28, going to all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the, what, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, can you imagine putting Paul's name there? Hmm. Or putting Peter's name there. I mean, what other name can you put that would be on a level of equality, person equality, apart from those three persons? I cannot think of any other name you could put. Can you put Michael the Mar- Archangel there? You can't, yeah. see? So that shows you the three distinct persons on the same level of equality. And of course, in Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, again, as well, you'll find the three persons are mentioned. And then Jude uh, 20 and, and verse 20 and verse 21, you'll find that all three of them, again, are mentioned on the same level of equality. Maybe you can read down Jude 20, verse 20 and 21. Yeah, Jude 20, 20... And 21. There's only one verse. Yep. Verse 20. But be ye, but ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the spirit, for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Notice that they mentioned three different aspects, but notice that it mentioned the same level of equality. Uh, for the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, uh, love of God, and then looking for the Lord to return. Notice three of them associated there as he comes to an end, basically, as a, as a small epistle. So they're all three of them associated. And, and there's no sense that um, Jude has any idea, maybe I shouldn't do this, you know, how can I put the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit within one sentence or within one thing. It's very clear that he he wrote with as much ease as possible because there was no there's no uh, sense of hesitation about this whole matter. And then the other thing, uh, Nathan, is that many times words in the Old Testament are said to be said of God, that God spoke those words. But when you come to the book of Hebrews, it says the Holy Spirit said those things. So um, you either have a massive contradiction that you could attribute those words to God and then attribute it to the Spirit, or you're dealing with the fact that you've got a Godhead where one, whatever one does, the other one does because they operate on the same basis. And I think you'll find that in the book of Hebrews. Um, when you compare, we can't do it now, we compare Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, with Psalm 95, verse 6 and 7, 9, 8 to 11, and then go back to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 7, you find that that is, that you'll see that triangular thing that God said something and then the Holy Spirit says uh, exactly what God says is attributed to Him. And then finally, the names of the Spirit indicate, quite frankly, He's called the Spirit of God in Genesis chapter two, 1, verse 2. He's called the Spirit of Truth in John chapter 16, verse 13. He's called the Spirit of Sanctification in First Second Thessalonians 2, 13 and First Peter 1, 2. He's called the Holy One in First John 2, verse 9. These are all titles that are attributed to God, uh, etc. So those are the sevenfold um, bases on which... Um, we reached the conclusion, the only reasonable, logical, sensible, biblical conclusion to do that we are dealing with a being or an entity that's on the same level of equality as the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we've spent a long time talking about who the Holy Spirit is, who He isn't. What is His role or His work? Well, uh, it depends on how we look at it. What is his role in connection with the world, for example? He has a role to play in the world. What is his uh, role in relation to the believer? He has a role to play in that. 
uh, we can look at his role in relation to the life of Christ if you want to look at it what was his role in the life of Christ and then of course what is his role in relation to scripture so uh, if we want to talk about his his role let's talk about the world for just a moment we know for example that uh, he was an agent in creation we looked at that in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and Job chapter 33 verse 4 we know that he was part of creation so in creation of the world he was actively involved in the creative act but let's not go there because he's been there already but he look at John uh, 16 verse 8 to 12 8-11 John 16 8-11 says and when he has come he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me of righteousness because I go to my father and ye see me no more of judgment because the prince of the world is judged so that clearly tells you what his ministry in relation to the world has to do with conviction basically convicted men uh, because they have not believed in Christ. So his role in bringing people to faith has to do with the matter of convicting people. Uh, righteousness, what we need above everything else if we're ever going to have a relation with God is righteousness. And he brings that conviction that the only source of true righteousness that actually is acceptable to God is the righteousness of his son provided in the death of his son, which is imputed to the believer. And of course, of judgment, because Satan has already judged that we can be sure absolutely sure that every man will stand before God and give an account because even the greatest of our enemies has already been judged in God's sight. So judgment is coming. There's righteousness available, but that must come through faith and trust in Christ. And his job is to do that convicting work. That's why um, within salvation, there's a twofold role. There's the role of the Spirit and the role of the human instrument. We are told to go and declare the gospel and share the gospel. The Spirit's job is to use the gospel, which is the sword of the Spirit, to bring about that conviction. We must always not try to force people into making a decision when we sense that they're just not there, they're not interested. I've seen people push people to make decisions and just to get off there, get them out of the house or to get them, you know, just, okay, I'll, I'll say the prayer. But it means nothing. And what's the danger of doing that? The danger is that you make a false profession and the guys say you're saved and then you discover that this thing isn't working. What happens then? You think it's all bogus, right? And that's, that's the problem with a lot of people, by the way. They've gone through an experience like that. They found there's no reality to it. And then they give up. And people say, but wait a minute. A lot of times because pride plays a long part in this whole thing. When you've made a decision, you've been made a decision for just a long time. How do you now turn around and say it wasn't real? Right, and I think the pride of the individual often keeps them believing. Well, they know, quite frankly, there's nothing there, but they keep going on and going. But eventually, it comes to a point where they get so frustrated they say, "Look, I, you know, I can't go on like this any longer." And that's the danger. That's the danger. I've had dealt with people many, many times, and I've said, "Look, it's very clear to me you're not ready." Uh, you're not even concentrating on what I'm saying. You're not listening. You're distracted by the television. I don't think we should need to pursue this thing. Let's let's set up another date when I can come in and talk with you when we can't have the radio on the television on. We can give our time seriously to this whole matter. I'm not worried about um, reporting to anybody that I just had 20 people saved last week. That's not my point. I want real, genuine, authentic salvation. And I don't want anybody standing up in that day saying, but Pastor, you, you, you're the one that, that got me in this situation because uh, you know I wasn't ready and uh, it was very clear, but yet you pushed me and I made the decision and I went on. We have a lot of responsibility in this matter and we just need to be careful. Understand that the spirit work 
that is absolutely necessary in the world. So, the, the, and then uh, John sixteen thirteen to fourteen. John sixteen thirteen to fourteen says, "Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of Truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he that he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come." Verse fourteen. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. And these are the words of Jesus. Uh, that's his job in the world, to really exalt Christ. Uh, he never exalts himself. And that's why when you find you've got the distraction where the emphasis is not only is not on Christ, everything, you, you, Christ is lost in the whole thing because everything is about the Spirit, this is Spirit, this is Spirit. I think that's a real indication that that's not what his job is. He hides behind the scenes and elevates Christ. Never forget that. That's his job. When he comes, that's exactly what he will do. So we've got to be very careful and keep People can't put it in a particular angle all the time. So you, it's like, it's like I can't use a parallel, but it's like the Jehovah's always talking about the, the all you hear is the word Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. Yeah. You don't ever hear about Christ or the Seventh Day Adventists. All you hear is Sabbath, 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 Sabbath. So something is wrong when when people associate you. All they do, they don't associate you with the, the, the Christ. The whole purpose is it's about Christ, and that's his job in, in relation to the world. Now in relation to the believer. Um, we, we already look at John chapter 3, verse 5, where he regenerates uh, the believer. Uh, uh, John chapter 3, verse 5. John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Again, the Holy Spirit is absolutely indispensable for salvation. Uh, if anybody tell me they, they didn't get don't have any conviction when they got saved or uh, didn't come under the need for repentance and stuff, I, I hold that salvation suspect because that's his job. He regenerates and he brings about conviction. The other thing is that he indwells the believer after. Sorry. Pastor, we have a caller that is called in. Codrington, thank you for calling in. And go ahead quickly with your question, please. Yeah, I want to know when Jesus was dying on the cross and he said, um, Well, very, very simple, Codrington. Our Lord is on the cross. He's dying. He sees his mom. He's he's concerned about her welfare. Who's going to take care of his mom when he's gone? A child's responsibility is to take care of their parents, quite frankly, when they reach a certain age and they can't afford for themselves. In the New Testament days, of course, that turned to the to the, the, the men. So here he is. He's dying at 33 years old. Uh uh, he's, he wants someone to put them under her, her, somebody who especially care for her. And he said, look at John the Apostle and said, you know, um, uh, behold your mother, mother behold your son. So he's entrusting the care of Mary to John the Apostle. He's looking for John to take care of his mother while he goes to the cross and he dies. That's exactly what it's about. It's not a good answer. It's a correct answer. <laughs> if you read the passage itself, you see that's exactly the answer that is, is there. That's why he entrusting his, his care of his mother to John, uh, and that's his. You know, he saw it as his responsibility. Remember, she saw his pain and his anguish, and uh, she saw all the agony, and uh, she certainly would need somebody to console her. 
at that point in time. And that's where John came in to minister to her, and he had apparently a very effective ministry in caring for her. Thank you very much for your call, Codrington, as always. And remember to keep your focus on Jesus Christ. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.34. We've got about 25 minutes left in tonight's episode. Still plenty of time for you to call in. The number is open and av- the line is open and available. And the phone number to call to be put live on the air is 268-462-7420. If you would rather WhatsApp or text your question, send it to 268-782-1454. Uh, Pastor, back to the Holy Spirit yeah, in his we, role. You're looking at First uh, Corinthians three sixteen and First Corinthians six nineteen. The fact that one of his um, relations to the believer and his work in the believer, not only regeneration, but the matter that he comes to indwell the believer, uh, you find that in Corinthians three sixteen and six nineteen. Three sixteen says, "Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you?" And then 6.19. 6.19 says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Now, that's, this is a very serious understanding. People need to understand that. If you are a truly born-again believer, it means that God's Spirit indwell you, and it means that your body becomes a temple. The abuse of the temple of God is nothing to be taken lightly. Uh, Paul goes on to that passage say, If any man destroys God's temple, God will destroy that man. Mm. And that's why Paul uses in chapter t- chapter 12, when he's dealing with the whole question of fornication and immorality, he uses this as the pivotal reason why the believer should not be engaged in immorality and, and things that are, are outside the pale of biblical morality. And he warns this thing. And I think if believers could just understand that, because the point is this, when you take the temple of God, you into and then you join to a harlot, as what Paul says, you are actually incriminating Christ as part of that whole thing. And the Holy Spirit, you're making the Holy Spirit a co-partner in this type of matter. That shows you the gravity of sexual immorality in God's eyes. And I don't think that we see it that way today because it has been cheapened. But for the believer, he has to come back to the understanding. And this is the only thing in my judgment that will keep him out of immorality is to understand that he is the dwelling place of God and God's temple. I don't think any kind of mommy warning, any kind of daddy warning, I don't think AIDS or the 25 STDs is enough it has to come with the f- understanding of the Spirit indwelling you that becomes the basis for you keeping yourself pure and not giving in to the moral influence around you so you commit things that are wrong. I got saved when I was about 17. I said this, in, or, you know, when I got married, I got married at 27. I had never slept with a woman uh, for the time I, I, I never in my life, uh, but my wife is the first person I ever slept with. People often think I'm just saying this on the radio so that people don't. I'm not claiming to be any giant, Nathan, but the thing that kept me was the fact that I was a Christian. I could not see myself engaging in activity that would violate this biblical principle that the Holy Spirit indwells me and the Bible is contrary against this thing. This is what kept me. Nothing else kept me. Mommy didn't warn me and that was not what kept me. Daddy didn't warn me that what kept me. The reality of knowing that I was saved and that God indwelled me, I, I could not go on and violate this kind. And I think this is what we need to teach the young people 
all the all the lectures we give them and tell them all about the sexual it means nothing it has to be the power of truth to help them to understand the importance of remaining uh, pure uh, until they get married how do you respond to the listener who says a pastor teaching that to the next generation that's just legalism how can it be legalism if you're teaching biblical truth Paul taught it in, in Corinthians chapter 12. Why were the epistles given? The epistles were given to the church to instruct the church in what the church should do. So it cannot be a matter of legalism. Uh, legalism, by the way, is um, uh, more have to do with uh, ceremonial things. It has nothing to do with... There's no such thing as moral legalism in terms of uh, when you do something that the Bible says you should not... Uh, when you teach something morally, the Bible says you should... That's not legalism. That's not legalism. You're teaching righteousness because the, the Bible is the standard of righteousness. And when the Bible talks about a person being righteous or living righteous, you're living according to the standard. Uh, so that's not legalism. Legalism, for example, is uh, churches that say, you know, we, we shouldn't have a guitar in, 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 in the thing because, you know, or we shouldn't use, um, uh, if you go back to some of these um, uh, in the States, in, in um, Pennsylvania, I forgot the name of the Mennonites and those yeah. type of people. I mean, you can't drive a car. You can't use a telephone. The I mean, Amish. yeah, the Amish people. I mean, it, it's quite silly. Um, um, but again, that is what you call legalism. Uh, We've got to be very careful that we don't become what I call uh, obscurantists, where we believe that anything that is new is wrong. Right, and that's the problem with the Amish. Everything that is new seems to be worldly, but that's not what Paul is talking about and the Bible is talking about. So there's a difference between, uh, for example, when I was coming up, uh, Nathan, if a man had his sideburns a little bit down, he was worldly. If a person had a uh, beard, he was worldly. I mean, such crazy stuff. You look back at it and you laugh in disdain and can't believe that that was the, the thing that was really. But I understand the problem here, by the way. At the time, uh, they were concerned that the believer doesn't use his, lose his identity by blending in with the world, and because the world was set in the trend to follow the trend. I understand that. I still think today that we should not follow the trend. but uh, And I think that things that are worldly today will not be worldly 10 years or 15 years from now because it's not this trend any longer. It's just become the norm. So, but I do feel that not, all of that was not wrong. Uh, but I do feel that they they went to extremes in that kind of matter and, and said, listen, this is not uh, Bible saying it, but this is a, a principle of caring for your body or something. But I think by, by just strictly saying you shouldn't do it because and there's no biblical base for it, I think that's what legalism is. But we have a freedom in Christ, right? Yeah, we're free to obey. Okay. That's what we were made free to obey. We could not obey when we were slaves. But that's what Paul points out in, in Romans chapter 6, that Christ has freed us now that we can obey, right? Uh, so uh, it's a different thing altogether. Uh, that's why Romans chapter 6 is such a, <laughs> a chapter need to be taught in every church at a very early stage. Unfortunately, Nathan, it, at, most churches never get into that kind of doctoral teaching until it's maybe 10, 15, or 20 years. But remember that Paul is teaching this to a church that just started in Rome. Imagine that. And remember that all of these uh, great doctrines that we find in the, in the 
Paul's epistles, were taught to people that were two and three years as uh, believers. But we wait so long to start to teach them these kind of doctrines. So I think that's our failure. A text message that has just come in. Why is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, why is there not a woman figure when we were all born of a woman? You ask God that. Because what I'm locked into and all I have to depend upon is the Word of God. If you want to go beyond the Word of God and speculate, you can do that. But all I'm left to is the Word of God. When the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who am I to begin to question why a female is not part of the deity? It's all part of the rebellion that is there today with the um, sexism, with the women and women's liberation and feminism, stuff, feminism and stuff like that is uh, what this thing is all about. People need to humble themselves and understand that the Bible is the final authority. And uh, we can't tell God how to run his world, how to dictate his world. Uh, we just humble ourselves before God because we acknowledge him as supreme and always. And uh, that's what we need to do. You mentioned a couple minutes ago that what is worldly today mm-hmm. may not be considered worldly 10 years from now. Does that mean that the Bible may not be practical 10 years from now? No, the same principle applies. Because what is, what is um, let me put it this way. Remember the time when people wore dresses way down to the ankles? Yeah. It was considered to be modest then. Okay? Uh, you don't find anybody wearing, very seldom, wearing down to the ankles. You find dresses that are just below the knees, which is considered to be modest. See? If you were living back in those days and you'd raise, a woman had raised her thing to the knees, she'd be considered what? Immodest. A prostitute. A prostitute. That's what I'm saying. So, so in, the, in that first century world, she'd be considered a prostitute. So that was immodesty. See? Uh, we know, I think generally speaking, if a woman has a, a dress that is to her knees, we consider that to be very modest. When she begins to, anytime a woman begins to expose her ties, she's now gone into the realm of what the Bible calls uh, shame. Shame. It's a woman to show her thighs. So anytime the thighs are, you go by, by the thighs, you now become shameful. And the Bible condemns that. That is what you, I've got a term for it. Um, I've got to maybe do, deal with that at some point in time. But uh, it is there that when the Lord said, I will, I will show your shame, he said, let expose your thighs. So when it comes to the, the, the thighs, you want to make sure a woman's dress actually covers her properly there. And that's why I'm against all these tight things and stuff like that. We see the very imprint of every part of a woman's body. That doesn't belong in the church, right? And there has to be a, a, a modesty within the church. Uh, and I think that the best way to deal with that is to deal with the leaders first. That if people want to perform a leadership church in the church, let them know that we have certain standards for for modesty. If women want to do it, so uh, something like because it becomes a you don't want to be seen as uh, um, a policeman. Quite frankly, quite be honest with you, I don't know who wears what in our church. I'd be very honest with you, Nathan. I couldn't even tell you what my wife got on on Sunday morning, regardless what people. Because my mind when I come to church is one thing only: the message, the message. I don't know if you ask me what shirt. You wore, or my wife wore, I can't, t- I just can't tell you because it, those things don't matter to me, right? But some people come to church and that's all they matter. How oh, that person look? So they wonder sometimes, what a pastor, he didn't see that? Because that's not what my interest is. I am hoping that as I preach the word, I will say things to help people to understand that what they might be doing might be improper. But I don't have to ta- tackle the person directly. I preach the word, and as I preach the word, I use illustrations that would help people in that regard. So, but I'm saying that there's some things that might be, for example, Nathan, 
when I was um, um, coming up as well, if a person had on an afro, they were considered worldly. That's no longer true, for example. Um, a lot of other things have changed, and maybe we are getting a little bit more loose. Pastors, for example, in, in a lot of churches don't even wear ties sometimes. They just have on jeans and stuff like that. I'm not too sure that's where we want to go to be. Well, I think there has to be some kind of a balance. Uh, but that's a matter of discussion at some other point in time. <laughs> but what about the Word of God, like the what you would call the plan of salvation? Will that be as true 10 years, 100 years from now, if the Lord tarries, as it was 2,000 years ago? Well, let me put it, not just 2,000 years, 6,000 years ago. Remember when Paul is teaching on this great doctrine of salvation in Romans chapter 3 and 4? Who does he use as an example? He goes back to Genesis chapter 15 and said, Abraham believed God is counted to righteousness. The same gospel. That was 6,000 years ago, and Paul is preaching it 2,000 years later. He's preaching the same gospel. Today we preach. That gospel doesn't change. Men must learn that they must put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and that his righteousness will be imputed to them on the basis of faith. That's the gospel. That doesn't change. It will never change. Back to the Holy Spirit. What exactly is the role and work of the Holy Spirit? So we talked about the fact, as far as the believer is concerned, he regenerates the believer, and then we're told that he indwells his people, uh, the believer. The next thing we read is that he seals the believer. Look at Ephesians 4, 30. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 30 reads as follows. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. And then another passage that is very familiar as well. It's first, uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In whom ye also trusted... After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Two things about sealing, uh, Nathan. Sealing is about ownership. You remember book in the book of Revelations when he got 144,000? They're sealed with the seal of God. Right, sealed by God. That means that they're God's claiming ownership. The other thing about uh, sealing is security. And it's showing to the believer that the believer is secure. You belong to the Lord. The Lord claims ownership. And remember, the only one that can break that seal is God. Okay? And that, that, that is one of the great bases of believing in the eternal security of the believer. That God from all eternity had sealed those that would believe. Uh, and, uh, and put a faith and trust in him. So it becomes part of the ownership of God and part of the fact that we have security uh, as believers. So we don't have to worry in terms, am I saved today or lost tomorrow? We're sealed by God's Spirit, and that is he claims ownership, and he, he, he gives us a sense of security. Then the other thing, uh, Nathan, is look at um, Romans 8.26, another work of the Holy Spirit in relation to the believer. Romans eight twenty six yeah twenty six eight twenty six likewise the spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. 
clearly uh, it, it tells us quite there that the Spirit's job for the believer is interceding for the believer and that is the realm where the times we just don't know what God's will is we just we're groaning sometimes we, we just just and he prays always for us in terms of God's will and uh, so beside ourselves praying and interceding uh, in that moment when we are so confused or so distraught or so um, unclear as to what God's will the Spirit's job then is to intercede for us according to God's will and that is a, a task that uh, thank God that uh, he does that I don't know how many times I might have gone off course had it not been for the ministry of the Holy Spirit praying for me to keep me on course in terms of God's will. And you don't know either. But I think in eternity, a lot of we're going to discover a lot that we don't understand why we did certain things, why we ended up, what things we avoided doing. And we'll see that behind a lot of these great mysteries, the hand of the Spirit interceding for us and God responding to that and keeping us in line so that we didn't go off track and get off uh, our plan, God's plan for our lives. Do you think you're over-spiritualizing that by saying that in eternity we'll look back and see that God had a, a plan bigger than what we understand? Oh, oh, no, I don't think so at all. As a matter of fact, um, I think that we will discover in the future, uh, quite frankly, what God's perfect plan was. And I think he'll show us what we did with that plan. And he'll show us that you know, how t- many times we went off and how many times he brought us back on. But I think he will see you. I think what will, what will make us glorify him more is to really see his hand in our lives, working ways. And we're looking, but I didn't understand why he did that. I didn't. And then God, we begin to see that behind all of this, God is working on the scene. I think that will bring greater glory to him. Than, um, than anything else to understand his role in our lives that we were so oblivious to you know Paul said we wrestle against flesh and blood how many times we, we, we know some demonic power was plotting our ruin mm. and there was an intervention that we knew nothing about I think those are countless episodes that we'll discover in eternity and that would resound in greater glory to him as we see how he's really kept us uh, in our lives the other thing Nathan is uh, in Corinthians chapter 12 you might want to turn there. The Holy Spirit endows the believers with gifts. That's another role that he has uh, in this passage. First Corinthians? Yeah, chapter 12. What verse? Uh, look at verse um, uh, verse 4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Go ahead. Read. And there are differences of administrations, but of the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which maketh, which worketh all in all. Right. There's a verse in that passage that says, The Spirit give us the gift as He wills. Give us the gift as He wills. Mm. Um, I didn't write it down. Verse 7 says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Okay, but the, the, the it's, it's there somewhere. Uh, the point I'm making, if you, even if you read the, the chapter, would be that... Verse 11, But all these worketh, that one and the selfsame yeah, spirit divideth to every man severally as he wills. As he wills. As he, that's his choice. So clearly, in, in Corinthians chapter 12, it's the spirit that gives the believer the gifts. So every believer has at least one spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit gives to the believer. That is part of his ministry. So when a person puts their faith and trust in Christ, a spiritual gift is given to that believer. And the role of the believer is to find out how I can use that gift within the local assembly. That should be the searching question of every believer. Okay, I'm saved now. 
according to the scripture, I'm given a spiritual gift. What's my spiritual gift? And how can I use it within the assembly of, of the church? That's why I tell people that when you think of a church, uh, don't think of a church where the pastor does everything. You know, he, everything. You've got to try and find a church where he allows people to engage in ministry and uh, what God is leading them in those, those particular areas. But that's another uh, responsibility that he, he, the Holy Spirit. Then one other one, um, look at um, Acts eight twenty nine. This has to do with the Spirit guiding the believer. Acts eight twenty nine uh-huh. says... Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Right. And then look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 15. Uh, Galatians 5, 15. 15. Read, read, read until you stop. Yeah. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led by the spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I have told you in the past, that ye which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And good, good. I think that's good enough. The point here is that um, if you're led by the Spirit, uh, we talk about um, the two ways that Paul talks about in Galatians, a life that is controlled by the flesh and a life that is controlled and guided by the Spirit. And you can know the two different aspects of those. The works of the flesh are clearly defined. That's a life controlled by the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is a life controlled by the Spirit. So one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to guide and lead the believer along those nine fruits that are talked about, away from the way of the flesh. So you've got this competing flesh and spirit. And uh, so that's his spirit. His spirit's job is to guide the believer along those biblical graces that the Bible talks about and away from the fleshly desires that he mentioned there, which are called the works of the flesh. Is it possible in a believer's life, from your understanding of the Bible, that some of the those things that are the works of the flesh could be in a believer's life at the same time as some of these uh, works of the Spirit? I think it's possible. Uh, let me put it this way. That's about these walking according to the Spirit in terms of these, I mean, they've got uh, um, the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, faith. You can have goodness, faith. You can have some of those things. But you may not have self-control, mm. right? But remember that there are nine fruit. There's not one fruit. So it's very, very possible that you may not have that self-control. That still has to be developing you. And a person who doesn't have self-control, you look at the works of the flesh, you see how many of those you may have a weakness and those kind of things. So I think it is possible. that. But again, it's not that a believer can live 
continuously in this kind of a lifestyle. I'm talking about believers slipping into something, etc., etc. I'm not talking living in a lifestyle like that for years and years and years and stuff like that. People tell me that all the time, and they tell me, oh, I, I, I. They tell me I'm a very straightforward person. I know what God has done in my life, and I know what has kept me out of a lot of things. And I don't think that I, in any way, um, is a superhuman being. But I know faith in God and faith in His Word has kept me, and I think that's what a believer's life is all about. So when I hear people tell me they're living in sin for 10 years or 15 years, and there's no conviction, there's no chastening, you're still telling me that you're saved? Mm. <laughs> you can tell somebody else, that, don't tell me that, because the Bible says that when we get away from God, He chastens us. So you wouldn't call that backsliding? <sighs> It would have to be some kind of, there had to be chastening to bring that person back. If the person is saying that while I was there, there was no chastening, it creates in my mind uh, a doubt that whether there's really any reality there. There has to be divine chastening. Now, it may be that they were being chastened originally, and they could yeah. tell you the story. You know, when I, when I first fell into sin, I was chastened. And it could be that uh, over some time they, they got uh, hardened. I think that's possible. But don't tell me that there was no chastening whatsoever when this thing happened in your life. Something got to be wrong there because uh, God has promised every single child of His, He says, will have chastening. What is it that I can know for sure that I'm a believer? How can I know for sure that I'm a believer? The way you know you're saved and you're a believer is have you repented of your sins and have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? It's that simple. Repent and believe. Thank you for joining us for tonight's episode. And be sure that you stay tuned to the Radio Lighthouse and then tune in next week. If you have a question that comes to you throughout the week, you can send it to us via WhatsApp or text to 268-782-1454 and we will start out next week episode Lord willing, answering your question. Have a great night and stay tuned to CRL. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.